Welcome to the Sunday Messages podcast from New Hope Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Our mission is to glorify God by making fully devoted followers of Christ, by belonging together, believing in Christ alone, and blessing our world. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, we pray today's message brings you hope and help along the way. Amen. Amen. I love that ending. That is powerful stuff. Talk about powerful stuff. How about victory in Jesus in that style? Now, some of you, some of you are probably used to the old uh, 75 hymnal version of that. Saturday night is a great night for you to come. We, it's a little more low-key on Saturday night. We sing the same great songs, but kind of different format. But God bless you, band. God bless you, singers and Pastor Philip. Excellent, excellent job. And actually, that fits perfectly with what we're going to talk about today. God always works it out. We're talking about arrows. We're talking about aiming not just the arrows of our life, but our our, our very lives at the targets that God has set before us. Now, we've been talking about this for many weeks. This isn't new. We know that God has a target that he has put before each one of us that he wants us to aim at, to to, to invest in, and and to work towards, and to, to pray towards, and we hit that target. The problem is the world has also set up all kinds of targets in front of us and they're bright and they're shiny and they're enticing. The problem with those targets is we will invest and we will work and we will pray towards hitting those targets. But even if we hit those targets, even if we get a bullseye in those worldly targets, we will wind up as empty as when we started. Only when we hit God's target, the one that he has set up for you and for me, will we find that true satisfaction, that peace, that shalom peace that only comes from God. So we've talked about all the other kind of targets we might hit, targets. Sometimes they're moving targets, you remember? Sometimes they're targets we've been aiming too high and really God wants us to aim lower. We talked about that. This week I want to talk about the idea, the problem, what if there's two targets? What if there's two good options and we don't know which one is the right option? Last week, we celebrated our high school graduates. This is a perfect example. They're graduating high school, and then it's time to get out into the world. What do they do? Do they jump right into the workforce and and get a full-time job and invest their lives there and build a career? Or do they put that off for a few years and and head off to college and, and earn a degree and then start working? What about, what about the, the, the predicament many of our young ladies are faced with? Do they build their career, invest in their career, or do they go ahead and get married and start a family first? Or like many of the young families that are moving to Cape Coral right now with these crazy house prices, do they rent a house or do they invest and buy a house? These are questions. These are targets. Both are good option, but which is the best option? Even in the biblical world, even in the theological world, there are these questions. Here's the one we're going to tackle today. Is it works or is it faith? Are we saved by faith alone or are we saved by the works that we do? Works and faith, saved by works is what Uh, uh, saved by grace and faith alone is what Paul would say. We're going to be reading out of James today that faith without works is dead. Some have been aiming at the wrong target all along. What if we're aiming at one of these and it's really the other? Here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to read a passage out of James. James is one side of the argument, if you will. Paul is the other. We're going to read a little bit out of Paul. At the end of this story, you're going to have the opportunity to decide, which is it, faith or works? Are you ready to dig in? Grab your Bibles and open up to the book of James. If you have your phone, you can aim it at that QR code, get the the Bible text, the sermon notes right in front of you, or you can follow in the screen behind me. We're going to understand what it is. Is it faith? Is it works? Or maybe it's both. James chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 14 like we often do. We'll just read a bit bit at a time of the passage and kind of understand. We're going to find out that there's superficial faith. We're going to find out that there's insufficient faith, but then we're going to find out that there is indeed growing faith. So let me start out with James chapter 2, verse 14. It says this. James says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Or your version might say, justify them? Suppose a brother or sister without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. All right, let's just stop right there. Let's talk about what superficial faith would look like to understand this whole argument. He starts out, James, pastor of the church in Jerusalem, probably by all understanding a, a mega church in those days. He's a pastor of the church. He's talking to the brothers and sisters. This is code word. Anytime you read these words in the New Testament, it's code word for believers. These are folks that have believed in Jesus. They are saved by faith. They already have that relationship to Jesus. That's why he calls him brothers and sisters. He is an insider talking to insiders. And he says, brothers and sisters, what if you have this kind of a faith? Will that faith save you? Is it a saving faith? James is saying you must work in addition to your saving. Paul, on the other hand, over in the book of Ephesians, as he's talking to his people, no, nothing could be further in the truth. He says in in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, that we are saved by grace through faith and not of our works. So which is it? Is this a contradiction? Is one Bible writer saying one thing and the other is saying the other? Just to clarify things, over in the book of Galatians, yet another book in the New Testament, we read the story of when James and Paul and Peter get together and they they kind of duke it out. (laughs) They they discuss it. It's called the the Jerusalem Council. They talk about these exact exact issues. And at the end, they, they, they hug it out. They shake hands. They affirm each other. So for them, there's no contradiction. Remember, the same Holy Spirit who led James to write his book is the same Holy Spirit that led Paul to write his book. Clearly for the Holy Spirit, there's no contradiction. And then hundreds of years later, as biblical leaders and and church leaders put together the books that would compile what you and I call the New Testament, they had James in their hand, they had all the writings of Paul in their hand. They put them all together. Clearly, they saw no contradiction. So what's going on here? Let's understand better. The salvation that comes through faith, Paul is talking about the root of salvation, the foundation, the entrance into the kingdom of God, God's eternal work in us. It is God. James, however, is not talking about the root 
of salvation, but rather the fruit of salvation, the proof, the evidence of the salvation we already possess. It is not God's work in the future. It is God's work in today, in history, in our history. So let me throw out a few more theological words for you to help you understand. In the Bible, we understand the whole salvation process this way. The very first thing that happens is what we call justification. You've probably heard this word. We are justified or made right or righteous by God. When Jesus died on the cross, his blood was powerful enough not only to wipe away the sins of those living at that time, but all the way to the present and all the way into eternity. We are justified not because of something we did. We are justified, made righteous, made right with God by God and by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is something that happens to us through faith, grace through faith. Then, after that justification, then comes what theologians call sanctification. Sancti is Latin for holy. Hagion in the Greek New Testament. It means we are holified. We are being made holy. We are becoming more like Jesus. This is a process. Justification is all God. He does that to us. Sanctification, we are very much involved in the process. The split second after we are justified by God begins a process that leads our entire life. We are becoming more like him. Following that, then comes what's called glorification. That's where Jesus, that's where God finishes the job. He matures us. He completes us. This happens as we step into eternity to live with him for all eternity in heaven. This justification, then sanctification, then glorification is a process we as believers understand we go through as children of God. The, the problem comes in when folks start saying, no, 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 no. It's not justification and then sanctification. For me, it's justification plus sanctification. If you hear that, if you understand that, if that's what you're reading here in God's word, that is heresy. That is saying, in a sense, that that which Jesus did for me, die on the cross, his blood was sufficient, but not quite sufficient enough I have to do a little bit more to make sure I'm really in. Sacrifice, give, work, do, whatever it is, Jesus wasn't enough. It's Jesus plus my effort. That is heresy. That is not biblical. That is not at all what either James or Paul is saying. So what are we to understand here? We don't add action to our faith to earn salvation, but saving faith, it will express itself in action. That very same verse we talked about from Paul where he said we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves or not of our works, it continues on to verse 10, just one verse later to say this, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Even Paul understood the place for, the purpose of, the importance of works in our faith process. They are not happening in the justification stage. They're happening after that justification has occurred, that salvation has occurred. It's occurring in the sanctification, the becoming more like Jesus. There are not two different kinds of Christians, those that work for their salvation and those that sit back and let Jesus do all the work for their salvation, it is all together. There's one save. When faith is not activated, it atrophies. Let me just explain a little bit more about this word work before we move on. The word work in the, in the New Testament is the word ergon. That's a, a Greek word, ergon. We have our English word ergonomics. 
the study of work, the study of movement. So ergon is, is when something is actually moving or actually happening. In fact, it means when we act upon an inner desire. When we put an idea that's in our brains, in our head, in our heart, when we put an idea into motion, that is ergon. So what is God saying here? The example that, uh, that James gives is, what if, what, if, what if some brothers and sisters, believers, other insiders come to you and say, listen, dude, I'm starving. I haven't eaten in about three days. Can you help me out? Instead of going to the kitchen, pulling out some bread, smearing it, throwing on some ham, some cheese, and some lettuce, and giving them a sandwich, instead of doing anything like that, all we do is start spewing scriptural platitudes, Christian sayings. That's what this was. This go in peace, that was an old, that was an old conservative saying. They would have said to each other, kind of like we say, hey, I'll pray for you. <laughs> Bless your heart. It sounds religious, but it really has no meaning for most of us. They, they, they may have said, I've been meaning to call you all week. Just never got around to it. I've thought about you a hundred times. I meant to come by. Man, I, I, was, I was really hoping I was going to be able to come over and help you with that thing this week. Every single one of those sayings, you might as well not even say them. They, they mean literally nothing unless there's action behind it. This acting upon a desire, this putting of this thought into action, that brings this, this dual function, not only the dual function, but also the dual result of work. So these ergons, number one, it gives evidence of our faith. When I act upon a, a, a thought, when I put an idea or maybe an impulse the Holy Spirit has given me, how I can help someone, serve someone, share the gospel with someone, uh, be involved in, in what God's doing here in Cape Coral, when I have that thought in my head or in my heart and I put that into action, number one, it is evidence of my faith. People know who I am and whose I am, but it also, it strengthens my faith. Let me give you a practical example. Uh, there's still a few of these hurricane houses around, you know, that, that got damaged maybe really badly in the hurricane. No one's really seeming to do anything with it. The owner gave up or, or threw in the towel or moved back north, whatever. Let's say you've you got a little bit of money packed away. You want to invest in one of these houses. So you find one of these old houses. The, the trees are still knocked over. The windows are still knocked out. There's still the, the water line marked somewhere on the front door. You buy this house. You, you pay the money. You make that first mortgage payment. How are your neighbors going to know that there's a new owner in town? How are your neighbors going to know that someone now owns that house? It's been sitting empty for so long. Well, easy they're going to start seeing the difference. If you're anything like me, you start cutting the grass, you start trimming the trees, you start pulling the weeds away, you have the windows replaced, you have the roof repaired, you, you throw some paint on the walls, your neighbors will know that there's a new owner in that house. But here's the deal. You own that house. I mean, if you wait three months or or even three years, if you do nothing to that house for three years except make the mortgage payment how is anyone going to know there's a new owner in that house? They're not going to know. You're still the owner of the house. But unless there's a change, the neighbors aren't going to know there's any difference. God is calling us to make that difference. The harder we work, the harder we invest, the more leadership and the more skills we develop. That house is ours. This life is ours. The goal is that others would see that in us. But secondly, not only is there a superficial faith, there's also an insufficient faith. Look at verses 18 
19 and 20. But someone will say, you have faith, but I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith with my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? All right, stop right there. There's not only a superficial faith that, uh, that never gets out of its shell, that never demonstrates the change that's happened inside of us, there's also an insufficient uh, 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 faith, kind of like this word here, this useless faith. Uh, James, again, is talking. He's making an argument here. Maybe he's preaching this originally as a sermon. We don't really know where it came from, but he's making an argument. Then he says, but someone will say, there's always one, isn't there? <laughs> In every crowd, he is, James is convinced he's done the study. He's heard from the Holy Spirit. He's sharing what God has given him, and someone sticks their hand up. Or maybe it was a little fraction in the church. They all stick their hand up. Hold on, pastor. Wait just a minute. It's probably, probably a Baptist church, and they have, they have pushback. And so suddenly, James is now defending this theological point. It's important for, him to under, for us to understand exactly what he is walking them through and therefore what he is walking us through. First of all, he says this. You believe there is one God. This was kind of a, 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 an old-timey, kind of conservative. Everyone would have memorized this in the Jewish faith and then even into the Christian faith. Comes out of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, the Shema. Behold, our, the Lord our God is one. Everyone knew it. It was kind of the, the lowest common denominator of belief, of faith. Nothing wrong with it. Comes right out of the Bible. Kind of like today we would say, um, Jesus loves me, this I know, for, for the Bible. Exactly right, Jimmy. We might say no, nothing wrong with that. It is 100% true. It's actually way deeper than most people understand. But it's kind of the lowest common denominator. This is what they were spewing. James says, great, you believe that. You have right belief. But then he says, here's the problem. Those demons that have been attacking you and your family, this church family, the work of God, those demons, they believe too. They have the same right belief that you do. They don't question God. They know exactly who God is. They know exactly who his son is. And not only that, they even go a step further. The Bible says they believe it and they shudder or they tremble in fear. They're scared to death. They fear God. They've even won up. You've been won up by the demons. Here's a problem today. In our world, in our churches today, we have, we have believers. <laughs> this sounds more shocking than I really mean it, but we have, we have church members, we have, we have Christians, we have folks in our, in our churches that are just like these demons. Hold on, I'm not throwing stones. But all they can really attest to, all they can really demonstrate is they have right belief, well, sure, they have right belief. They've been going to church for decades. They've heard a thousand sermons. They go to not one, but two, sometimes three Bible studies a week. They've got right belief. Not only that, they fear God. Well, or at least they fear getting caught by God and what that might mean to them or their, their reputation or to their family. What is it that differentiates those kind of Christians and, of course, these terrible demons? There has to be more. What are we missing here? There's right belief. There's right respect for God, knowing where he is. What we're missing is that right 
relationship with God, that, that worship, that obedience to God. Neither the demons nor these folks understand or live that out. Folks, our churches are full of these kind of people. Yes, they have saving faith. They are justified, just like we read in the Bible from, from the Apostle Paul. But we are not seeing the evidence of the sanctification, that, that process of growing in faith. They're still dealing with the same sins they dealt with decades ago. They are living in defeat. That song we just sung, Victory in Jesus, I am sure there are some of us in this room right now saying, victory? What victory? I haven't had victory in my spiritual life in years. God wants to counteract, the, counteract, counteract this and, and help us understand how important it is to use works in the stage, in the process of sanctification. Folks, it's like, like going to the doctor. Something's wrong. You know it's wrong. You're hurt where you shouldn't hurt. You ache where you shouldn't ache. You've Googled it. You've searched on the internet. You know it's something, and you know it's something serious. You go to the doctor, and you tell her what's ailing you, and she does all the tests, and she checks it out, and she's a, a good doctor. She diagnoses the problem. She knows exactly what's wrong. Not only that, she knows exactly what we need to do about it. She prescribes the perfect medicine. Within a couple weeks, you're going to be fine. You thank the doctor. You walk out. You're telling your neighbors. You're telling the gal at Publix checkout line what a great doctor you have. But you never go to CVS to pick up the medicine. And weeks later, you wonder why nothing's changed why nothing's changed. Folks, it's the same with works. The, the sitting and the soaking, the, the believing the right things, the being afraid of God because of what he might do to you when you make a mistake, that's a good start. But even the demons, they pull that off. This is next level stuff. This is where God says, I want your faith to be useful. But instead, the Bible says right there, verse 21, you see... Uh, Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that your faith without deeds is useless? Useless is that same word ergon, work, with an A, meaning anti or opposed. It means it is non-working. It is not working. Your faith has no power. It is an insufficient faith, insufficient to create any change at all. If we are not working out our faith and putting those thoughts, those impulses, those ideas from the Holy Spirit into practice, we have an insufficient faith, unable to create any change at all. We need to stretch and pull and push our faith muscles if we are to grow. But in this story, as in our lives, there is a faith that is growing. Let's look what growing faith looks like. God gives us here the... Uh, the writer, James, gives us two excellent examples. Look at verse 21. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete, what? By what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. 
So let's just take this one good example. We'll get to the second God's so good. He gives a guy and a gal, you know, so we understand better what this really looks like. What, what is Abraham's example? Abraham, he was the, uh, the OG, the, the original gangster. Actually, he was the OJ, the original Jew. He was the first guy. God, God scoured the whole earth and he picked Abram. Later, he changed his name to Abraham. This is a guy God wanted to start with. This is a guy that God was going to start his entire nation, his entire family with. This is that guy. That story was way back in Genesis 12. The story that uh, James is now alluding to, that's not until Genesis chapter 22. Real quick, the story is this. Uh, Abraham, Abraham didn't have any kids. He and his wife Sarah were very old. God said, no, no, you're going to be the father of many nations. He says, great, love the idea. One small problem, we're childless. God says, don't worry, I got this. He finally gives him a son, a son named Isaac. The son's growing, and Sarah's like, well, this is a slow start, but God, we're trusting you. One morning, Abram wakes up with a prayer and a command from God, take this one son, the one that's supposed to lead to an entire nation, take this one son, go up to that mountain and sacrifice him to me. Without a pause... Abraham took his son, took some servants, took some wood, took some fire, and started marching up to the hill. Before he gets to the hill, he had to pass through a valley. Before he gets to the hill, suddenly he's about to do it, and he hears some rustling in the thicket. It is a ram. And God says, don't kill Isaac. Go get the ram. Sacrifice the ram. He does that, and all is good. That's the story. That's in chapter 22. This is not the beginning of his relationship with God. That happened back in chapter 12. And that, in fact, even after that, in chapter 15, God calls the same guy, Abraham, who is already believing, who is already following, who is already obeying. In chapter 15, God even calls him righteous. Then we get to chapter 22. This act of, of, of of nearly sacrificing his son. This is not what saved him. This is not the saving act. If you do some big act of obedience for God, if you earn it, if it's big enough for all of your past sins, then God will save you. That's not at all what's going on. But this act of obedience, this work of force, is what made his faith complete, the Bible says. That word complete means mature. Folks, this is what you and I are going for. You've probably, like me, many of us have been in church for years, maybe even decades, and yet we still struggle with some of the same sins. We still struggle with not living in victory. We still feel many times, in fact, maybe even often, defeated. This is what God is giving you the opportunity to do. You want to be mature in your faith? You want to be complete in your faith? You want to be uh, defeatless and defeat-proof? You need to have this kind of faith. When does it happen? When he did the work. The Bible says he left early in the morning to go sacrifice his son. Of course, all mommies know why he had to leave early in the morning, because if Sarah had heard any word of this, she would have skinned him alive. <laughs> but, but he leaves early in the morning. He had to collect wood. He had to get servants involved. He had to collect fire. He had to build the altar. There were things he had to do. He didn't just pull together a bunch of folks and have a prayer meeting. He didn't form a committee to consider the implications of sacrificing my son to God. He did it. This work, this deed, this act, it completed his faith. It matured his faith, faith that was already there. Now, this whole idea of sacrificing your only child, 
That sounds incredibly strange to our 2,023 years. No parent in the room would ever consider sacrificing their child, except for the parents of teenagers. That thought does come up quite a bit. Other than that, none of us would consider sacrificing a child. What is this crazy story about? Get past that. This story for Abraham was about giving back to God the most precious gift God had ever given to him. What does that gift look like for you? Probably, if you're a mommy or a daddy, grandma or grandpa, probably it is your kids. Probably. Most days. It could be your career, all the time and energy you've invested. It could be your house, the sacrifices you made to finally make it here to the promised land in southwest Florida. It could be the, the, the money you've packed away in that 401k. It could be, could be a lot of things. When God comes knocking, as he did for Abraham, he is asking you to give back to him the most valuable thing you own. And why? Because it's sacrifice. That's why it's called sacrifice, because it's not easy. And then suddenly, Abraham hears a rustling in the thicket. He hears a ram. God provided a ram. Just like Abraham, you and I, we're going to have to go through some valleys of sacrifice before we get to the mountain of God's provision. It's fun to talk about the mountaintop experiences in our faith. It's fun to talk about the provision that God made on that day and in that situation and just the right time. Those are the fun stories. But it is a valley of sacrifice where we understand we must go through these faith-testing trials. And God wants to know, will I flex my faith muscles and trust him? Will I, will I get involved in what God is doing or will I dip out and give up? Will I play it safe with the, with the resources God has given me in the face of financial difficulties? Will I huddle together and hunker down and hold tight to my pocketbook? Or will I trust God and, and use these, these generous buckets, buckets full of generosity? Will I trust God or will I trust myself? Here's the deal, folks. There is always a gap between God's promise in God's provision. This God-appointed pause, I call it, a gap between what God promises he's going to do, promise he's going to change, promise he's going to provide, and then actually provide that. Why is that? I hate that pause. I hate that gap. If God promised it, I want it, and I want it now. Waiting hurts. Waiting is not fun. But in that waiting, God, decide, God understands and God sees if we are willing to trust him. It is in that gap where faith grows. And then God, uh, James gives us one more example. It's the story of Rahab. Let me tell you her story very quickly. Many of you probably know this. She was, uh, well, she was gainfully employed in the city of Jericho. In fact, she was the boss. She had her own small home business going. Uh, she was a prostitute, but she owned her own brothel. So she, she, uh, she, she was kind of in charge of things. And uh, Jericho was that city. We talked about it just a few months ago. It stood in the way of God's people entering into the promised land. It was, it was large. It was big. It was impressive. And on top of it, it had not one, but two walls all the way around it. 
Well, this Rahab lady, she had her home business in a home that was built into the wall of Jericho. Well, God's about to take that wall down. And before he did, Joshua sends a couple spies into Jericho just to kind of spy things out, see what's going on, kind of understand the lay of the land. Well, these guys had to stay overnight. They couldn't very well just camp out or go to a public hotel. They said, let's go over to the seedy part of town, the dark part of town, to this home where where they're accustomed to strange men coming in and out all times of night and day. No one will notice us. Rahab knew exactly who they were. The Bible says in the story, back in in Joshua, she knew exactly who they were. And as they were kind of camping out on the roof of her home, she says this in Joshua chapter 2, I know who you are. I know who you've, why you've come. We have heard about your God and all that he has done. The Lord your God is the God in heaven and the God on earth. How did that happen? Rahab, prostitute, running a brothel in a godless city. How did she hear God's story? Who walked up to a prostitute running a brothel in a godless city and thought she's the one that deserved, that needed to hear God's story? She heard God's story and then she clearly believed God's story. She said, I know that this is true. How does this happen? I'll tell you how. The same way it happened in your life and in my life. We're just like Rahab. Okay, we probably don't work in a brothel and there's probably no spies camping out on our roof, but we heard and we believed. That's exactly where she was. She heard the story of God. She believed the story of God, but she didn't stop there. The Bible says she also worked, not just believing, but also acting upon that. Verse 25 in, uh, in, in the story says that she was righteous for what she did. And back in the story in Joshua, the, the spies, as they were leaving, they said this, because of what you have done, not what you believed, not what you had in your heart, not what you've been praying for, but because of what you have done done. This was the key. She is righteous for that, for lodging the the spies in her home and for lying to the other king. This is why she was there. Her story doesn't even end there. After the walls come tumbling down and, and the people of God come into the city and defeat the entire city, wipe everyone, even the animals out, her family, her people are saved and taken to move on with the people of God. She winds up marrying a guy named Salmon. They marry, they have kids. If you read all the way into the New Testament, Matthew chapter one, we read about Rahab again. She winds up in the lineage of Jesus. You jump all the way to the end of the New Testament where where Paul is listing out the heroes of the faith, those who had real faith. Her name winds up again in that list of faith. Folks, no matter what your backstory is, no matter where you've come from, no matter what kind of garbage you were involved in, If you believe God, you hear God, you believe God, you begin working out your faith in real and and, and viable ways, God takes your life and he radically transforms it. He changes your story, he changes your legacy, he changes your eternity. Let me close with this one thought, because I think it's important not to get some theological point right Obviously, that's important. That's why we come to church to understand God's word and what he's saying to us, yes. But we really need to understand this because this idea, I believe today, 2023 is where the rubber is hitting the road. 
It is not either or. It is both and. It is faith and works. It is believing and behaving. Folks, I am sick and tired of watching and, and, and proving the world and the enemy right when they say the church is just full of hypocrites. Folks that talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. I am sick and tired of reading yet again another story of a fallen pastor or a fallen church leader. The crazy sins and debauchery that we read about that has become commonplace in the world that has crept into the church almost to the same degree that we see out there in the world. The world is becoming less and less religious. Folks are leaving churches by the thousands. Four out of every evangelical church is like this one. Four out of every five. Four out of every five are either dead or dying. Folks that were only attending church out of tradition or guilt, during COVID they left, never to come back. Folks, here's the deal. I believe the only voice that we as believers have in today's culture, in today's society, is, 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 is the, the, the walk and, and, the, and the works that we have. The world no longer listens to the gospel we preach, only to the gospel we live out among them. Church family, this is the question. Does your faith work? The working out of your faith does two things. It strengthens your faith. It completes, the Bible says. It matures your faith. That is reason enough to start working and start working out the thoughts, the impulses, the ideas that God gives you. But there's a second benefit. It gives you and me a powerful voice in our community to point others to Jesus Christ. That is my prayer. That is my prayer that Jesus would never show up at New Hope Church to say, yeah, you got the first one right, right belief. You even got the second one right. Yeah, you're sufficiently scared of what I might do to you if you mess up. But that right action and right works I just don't see it. Folks, I pray that we would use our activity and our works and our deeds not to save us or to win us more favor with God, but rather to get God's message, the gospel, into our city and into our world. Are you with me? Let's pray. Father God, we do pray for this. We do pray for your leadership in this. God, many of us have gotten stuck in a trap Tradition, a way of living out our weak, empty, bland, powerless, lifeless, useless faith. God, we pray that our faith would become alive, not just only by what we think and what we pray, but, Father, by what we do. Lead us in that, Father. We love you. Amen. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. We hope it's been an encouragement to you. You can find more free resources, learn about our church, and partner with us financially when you visit us online at newhopecapecoral.com. Also, if you have a question or a story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on the contact page, once again, at newhopecapecoral.com. 
Finally, if this message was a blessing to you, would you take a moment to share that blessing with others? You can do that by subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen, and by leaving a review to share your story with others. Thanks again for tuning in and for helping us share the hope of Jesus with the world he loves. We'll see you next time.